If you're, if you're able, would you remain standing and turn to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to read verses 10 through 18 as we continue our series on this epistle. First John chapter 3, starting at verse 10. This is the word of our Lord. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who, loves, he who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that uh, your spirit would attend the preaching of your word, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things concerning you in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The, uh, does anybody know what the Billboard Top 100 is? Uh, I think you have to be a certain age to, to know what that is. But the Billboard, Billboard Hot 100 number one hit in 1984 was Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It? I think uh, if you're of a certain age... You have heard that, that song, and I know that if you grew up in the church, you're probably told that you couldn't listen to Tina Turner. So, you know, if you have heard that song, just raise your left eyebrow. You don't have to signify by anything else now. But at age 44, she became the oldest solo female artist to hit number one in the Hot 100 chart. Uh, the famous refrain of that song goes, What's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? What's love got to do, got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? And that was the, 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 the theme of the song. And, and the premise of the song is that love only gets in the way in a relationship. That uh, you should just disregard love in a relationship. Because if, you're, if you love somebody else, all you're doing is open yourself for, uh, to a broken heart. And that's what Tina says. And that thought could not be further from the biblical reality, especially in the church of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John tells us that we must relate to one another in the church in love. If love is not present as Christians relate to one another, 
John says, Christ is also not present. John, in this passage, continues to interact with the claim of the heretical teachers that, that in order to know that you are a real Christian, you need some special knowledge that only the heretics have. They have this thing that uh, if you come to them, they'll tell you. And once you know that, you're in. You're in the inner circle. The mere Christian doesn't know that. But if you wanted to know that you know God, you have to have this special knowledge that only they have. Well, John says that it is clear to everyone, and it has been clear from the very beginning of the apostolic church, that that's not the case. That everybody knows what the Bible teaches concerning a real Christian. And John says, do you want to know that you know Christ? Well, ask yourself three questions. Three questions that are available to everybody. Three questions that every Christian can answer, every person can answer. What is it that you believe concerning Christ? Do you believe all that the Bible teaches concerning Christ? Do you obey what the Bible says? And do you love those who belong to God? These three, if these three, three things are true of you as a Christian, then you can know that you know Jesus Christ. You can have assurance of your faith. You don't need to be looking for some secret knowledge that the heretics have to offer you. In the section of the letter that we're considering this morning, uh, John addresses this third truth. The real, that real Christians... Love God's people. Real Christian, love God's people. If love is not present in your life as a Christian for other people, then you have no reason to think that your faith is genuine. Those two things go together. And John, even in this passage, shifts the way that he addresses the church for a moment. Instead of his usual little children, when he addresses the church, he calls them brothers in verse 13, though he reverts back to little children in verse 18. And he does that so that there's no doubt in the minds of his readers and in our minds that, uh, of whom we're supposed to love. We're supposed to love the brethren or the brothers. This, this is not a, just a, a male word, a masculine word. It's an inclusive word that the Christian loves those who belong to Christ. And he tells us that the basis for Christian love is divine love. Look at verse 16. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. The basis for Christian love is divine love. John does a masterful job in keeping the proper balance between Christ's work and our work. Time and again, he reminds the Christian that he does things because Christ has done everything for him. John wants to make sure that we don't just try to love our brethren, muster up that love on our own, and do that by our own boots, boots uh, straps. That we are able to love because Christ first loved us. John is interested in gracious obedience. That is, obedience that is deeply rooted in the person and the work of Christ. So John tells us that we only truly know love if we know it through Jesus Christ. Because He is the one, as it says in verse 16, who laid His life down for us. 
He repeats that and with more details in chapter 4, verse 7 through verse 11, where there John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And in this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We're going to spend time on this passage later on when we get to it in our series. But the point is that John clearly says that we're only able to love the brother. We only truly know what love is if we have known love through Jesus Christ. It's not something that we can muster on our own. And here John says that Jesus' work on our behalf enables us to love And that work is also our pattern for love. Jesus laid down His life for His people. He did that willingly. In John chapter 10, He says, No one can take my life. I lay my life down willingly for my sheep. And in John 15, He says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for His friend. Just to cover the obvious, Jesus laid down His life on the cross. Laying down his life means dying. He did that for his people, for his sheep. And one thing we have to keep in mind, more than ceasing to exist in the physical realm, death in the Bible signifies separation. Jesus Christ, out of love for his sheep, willingly went to the cross where the full wrath of God due the sins of his people was poured upon him. At that moment, and the moment of his death, he was separated from his father, with whom he had the most perfect, satisfying, and joyful fellowship, so that those who believe that he was doing that for them don't have to be separated from the father ever. That's what it means that Jesus laid his life down for his sheep. That's what laying down his life for his sheep means. It means that he becomes... That propitiation in verse four, chapter 4, verse 10. That one who unites us to God removes all the barriers that we may know the love of God. So Christian, if the circumstances of your life are causing you to question God's love for you, look to the cross. Look to Christ. That's the ultimate proof of God's love. But you say, Pastor... But my family is in shambles. I love my job. Things are difficult. Does God really love you? Does God really love me? Did Christ die for you? Did He rise again from the dead? So the answer is yes. We do not need any more proof of the love of God for us than the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the basis for Christian love which is the laying down of the life of Christ, the reason why we're able to love is also the pattern for our love. We are to love in the same way as Christ loved us. Look at verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, 
nor is he who does not love his brother. John continues through verse, this passage, the imagery of families. And in his mind, there are only two families and two families only. The whole world falls under these two families, Satan's family and God's family. And that's it. Even the visible church can also be divided into these two families. Remember that John is writing this letter to the church. And he's warning them that even among them, there are those who are part of Satan's family. There are those, even in the local church, that will not pass these three tests that John gives us. There are those, even in the local church, that should not be confident of their faith. Our Lord says that. Our Lord says in Matthew 7 and in Luke that... Oh, there are those that are going to come to him and say, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, he'll say I never knew you. And they're going, to, they're going to say, look at all the things we've done for you. And he's still going to say, depart from me. Because they're not coming to him through faith in Jesus Christ. They're basing their relationship on what they have done. Not what Christ has done. In Matthew 13, the Lord tells us the parable of the wheat and the tares. Where he says that... In the, 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 the sower sowed the field with wheat, and overnight the enemy came, and he sowed tares or weeds in the field. In the day, the worker says, look, there are weeds there. Should we remove the weeds? And the, the sower says, the farmer, the owner of the farm says, no, because if you remove the weeds, you might remove the wheat as well. We'll take care of that in the last days. And he says, that's how the kingdom of God, that's how the visible church is. That's going to be those that are wheat, and there are going to be those that are that are." tear that are weed and they're only going to be removed in the last day so even here today uh, we're going to have those who are true followers of jesus christ and we have those that are not and those that are not will be divided into several categories you're going to have those who think they are they really are convinced they are they are the lord lord kind but they're not you have those who know that they aren't but they're here pretending because of whatever pressures that may be. And you have those who know that they aren't, and they're not pretending, they're just here because some, maybe the, the Spirit prompted them to be here today. But it's important that all of us ask these questions. Do you believe in all that the Bible teaches concerning Jesus Christ? Do you obey all that the Bible says? If you, hear, if you read the Bible and you see that God is telling you something, if you hear a sermon that's, that's consistent with the Bible... Do you obey? And then as we see today, do you love the brethren? Do you love those for whom Christ died? Each family, John says, as a prototype, a pattern, an example that is to follow. Those who are member of, members of Satan's family have Cain as their example. Look at uh, verses 11 and 12. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. This is the only direct allusion to the Old Testament, the whole Bible, in the whole, not the whole Bible, in the whole letter, is this reference to Cain. And Cain's actions toward his brother Abel were motivated by jealousy and self-centeredness that led to hatred. Remember the story in Genesis chapter 4 where Cain 
murdered his brother Abel because God accepted Abel's offering and did not accept Cain's offering. And it had nothing really to do with the kind of offering they were bringing, but had everything to do with their hearts as they brought the offering before the Lord. And it's interesting that John says that the logical consequence of this kind of motivation, if we are relating to one another out of jealousy, out of anger, out of bitterness, the logical consequence is murder. Now, we may not follow to that, but that's where we're going when our relationships are, ba- are, are marked by jealousy, by anger, by bitterness, by revenge. The logical consequence is murder. And our Father, our example, our pattern is not Christ. Our pattern is the murderer, Cain. So that's not what motivates a Christian to love the brethren, to relate to the brethren. Any action toward a brother, toward a sister, must be motivated by love for him or for her. It can be motivated by a desire for vengeance. It can't even be motivated by a desire to preserve your reputation. It can be motivated by jealousy because jealousy ends in murder. Even when a brother or a sister sins against you, 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 you approach that brother, you approach that sister because you want to gain him. You want to gain her back. You love that brother and you can't bear the idea of an unreconciled relationship with him or her. And that's why you approach them. That's why Paul, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you're vindicated. Right? No. If he hears you, you've gained a brother. We can't stand, as Christians, we can't stand the idea that is a broken relationship, and that we don't have love as a mark of that relationship. Those who are members of God's family have Christ as their pattern in life. Look at verses 16 through 18. By this we know love, because He laid down His life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. John defines love here as giving of oneself for the good of another. That's what John 16, uh, 316, John, 1 John 3.16 tells us. John Stott, in, in, in commenting on this, he's a British comment, New Testament scholar, he says, Love is the willingness to surrender that which has value for our own life to enrich the life of another. That's what Jesus did when he laid his life down. And notice that laying down one's life does not only mean literally dying for a brother and sister. In verse 17, John says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So laying down your life also means giving of all the resources that the Lord has entrusted to us. That's what this world's goods are. Here, John reflects the same teaching as James. Though in James, it's not a test of love, but a test of faith. 
whether you have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In James chapter 2, verse 15 and 17, he says, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warned and filled, that's the equivalent of our saying, I'll pray for you. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? There's also faith in it by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And notice that John used the singular brother. If you know a brother who has a problem, who has a need, and you, don't, you have the ability to fulfill it, and you don't, don't say that you love that brother. And he uses a singular here to remove the abstraction from our thoughts. We, it's, it's, we're okay with thinking of the brethren, the collective faithless, faceless group. But John is asking us to think of the individual brother, individual sister, uh, C.S. Lewis, Emir Christianity says this, he says, It is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninterested, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody is gen- in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. And John makes sure that we know that, that he's referring to Face. If somebody's not faceless, are they faceful? It has a face to it. You know it is. It's not the abstract thing. He wants to love these people around you. And the word sees is also instructive here in verse 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need... This is the word for observing, not just seeing. It implies an attitude of looking for needs of the brethren. We can, we can often do this. I don't see any needs. I would love to help the brethren, but I don't see. No, what, what John is saying, you're observing it. You're looking for it. You're going around and knowing what's going on in your brother and your sister's life. And you're putting yourself out there to have that relationship so that you can help them out. And what John says that the declaring your love for people is not enough. Look at verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Truth, genuine, not just fake, not just saying I love you, man, but actually doing the things that biblically communicate love for one another. So let me ask you this Is your life defined by giving or by taking? Think of your life and your relationships. Is your life defined by giving or by taking? Are the people around you there to serve you? Is that how you see them? Now, there are times in our lives when we may need to be in taking mode. And that's okay. There are times when we're going through some stuff that we just need to have people help us. And we need to be in taking mode. And we need to be okay with that. But that cannot be the overall movie of our lives. It cannot be what characterizes the entirety of our lives. And, uh, that principle, we find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 13-15, where Paul says, Look, the church in Jerusalem needs your help. And you do that because now you have that to help them. And... We're not, I'm not putting a burden on you that, 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 that is unsurmountable, but you help them now because they're in need, and when you are in need, they will help you. So there's that give and take, whatever the need is. It's interesting, very characteristic of John in 1 John, for him there's only two choices. You either love the brethren 
or you hate the brethren. With nothing in between. For John to be neutral, to be indifferent to the brethren, is to hate them. And that should be very... It should be very instructional, instructive for us. That's why Linda sits right here to help me out with my my words. So in John's thing, there's no room for indifference in our relationships. So think of your relationship with the other people in the church. Are they marked by love or by indifference? Sometimes... Indifference is worse than hatred because it means that you're just not thinking about them at all. And notice that John ties obedient, the obedience test, do you obey the Bible, to the love test in verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. As F.F. Bruce says, righteousness and love are inseparable. You cannot be a righteous person before God and not be a loving person to the brethren. They go together. So, how do we love the brothers? How do we love the brothers? First, I think we need to remember that the proximity principle applies here. And you ask, what's the proximity principle? Well, John is not talking about love the brethren everywhere in a faceless manner, but love the brethren that are close to you. Those that are close by affinity or distance, that's that's the teaching we get from the parable of the Good Samaritan, isn't it? The guy was right there, therefore he helped him. So John means to, to, that we have to love those that are close to us, either in space or infinity, and those you can do something about for them. We see that in, uh, implied in verses 17 and 18. So how do we love our brothers? Well, I think if we went around, we could come up with all kinds of good ideas. But I want us to, to, to put this as number one. We... Love the brethren by obeying God's commands. That's not how we usually think of loving the brethren. Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15 says this, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you want to love the brethren? Obey God's command. Honor and obey your parents. Do not murder. That is, don't be angry and jealous. Not, do not commit adultery. Don't lust after the brethren. Don't steal from the brethren. Do not lie about or to the brethren. Don't covet the brethren's um, possessions. So we love the, our brothers by obeying God's command. We love our brothers by practicing the one another's of the Bible. There are 59 passages in the New Testament alone, that talk about one another. Things that we're supposed to do for one another and things that we're not supposed to do for one another. Of those 59, 46 are unique. So the New Testament gives us 46 unique ways to love one another. So it's not complicated. It's all over the New Testament. Now I'm going to give you some, some concrete ways that we can love our brothers. One is by praying for them and praying with them. Somebody asks you for prayer, take a moment, pray for them right there. And then continue to pray later on. Seeking and providing accountability. That's another way to love the brethren. Asking the hard questions and following up on them. 
Uh, I was telling somebody yesterday how different the culture here in the Pacific Northwest is different than the culture I grew up in Brazil, and even different than the rest of the United States. Uh, the Pacific Northwest is very polite, but it's very difficult to form relationships. It's a very closed sort of individual, individualistic sort of uh, uh, culture here. And I, I, when I first came here, fresh off the boat, I didn't come by boat, I came by plane, but that's the, uh, fresh off the plane, um, going to Tacoma Community College, and I remember somebody coming and saying, how are you doing? And my stopping to tell them how I was doing, and they're already like 10 feet the other side, because they really didn't mean that they wanted to know how I was doing. They were just saying hi, but I came from a place when somebody asks how you're doing, you stop and, and you tell them. But often, we are not willing to ask the hard questions, even the how you're doing, with the desire to know how they're doing, because it takes time. And if they say something, we may have to act on it. So... How are, how are you doing? Good. <sighs> okay, move on. Now check, done my duty. But that's not how we love the brethren. We love the brethren by asking the hard questions and then doing something, following up. One way that we don't think about that is a great display of love for the brethren is being in church to worship with them. That's a display of love for the brethren. Now when we're absent from, absent from church people miss us. They desire us to be together. We want to be together, every one of us. And that's the way that we love one another, by being present, by making that the priority of our week, to be in church on the Lord's Day. Reading the Bible together. Uh, it's um, interesting that there's a, great, there's a great habit in British evangelicalism and Australian evangelicalism for believers just sit with one another and literally read the Bible together. Don't have to prepare a Bible study. Don't have to read a book. Just sit down over lunch or at lunch break and read the Bible together. That's great benefit, and that's great love for one another. Read a book together. These are all ways, and as I said, we can go around and find all kinds of concrete ways that we could biblically love one another. So, so what, what does God call us to do? It In some ways, Nike is instructive on this point. Just do it. You don't have to wait for something to happen. You just do it. You just love the brethren in concrete ways. But be careful. Because Christian love draws the world's hatred. Look at verse 13. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So don't be surprised if the world hates you because Christian love draws the world's hatred. There is something about a Christian love in another Christian that is irksome to the world. And I think it's because it reminds them of the love of Christ. And contrary to what you might think, the world does not want the love of Christ. Unless the Spirit of God changes a person's heart, that person is not seeking God, that person does not want to be God, that person is a hater of God. Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If the world hates us because of our obedience to Christ, guess what? We are in great company. Because that's what they did to our Lord. The love of a Christian for another reminds the world of something it doesn't have. 
So it responds in hatred. The love of a Christian for another sheds light on what passes for love in the world and shows them that it's not love at all. When we biblically love one another, what we're doing is shining light on all the things that are called love in this world that are not. But the world loves that, and they want to keep on those false to hold on to those false definitions of love. Therefore, it responds to us in hatred. The world is jealous of the love of a Christian for another, so it responds in hatred toward Christians. And the sad thing is that Christians are looking to the world to figure out what love is, when the world is actually jealous of biblical love. The world looks for occasions where Christians are not loving each other and then makes public a public display of that in order to discredit the goodness of Christian love. So what's love got to do with it? Everything. Christ laid down his life for us. Because of that, we lay down our lives for the brethren. Does this idea of loving your brothers and sisters make you uncomfortable? Do you find this message to be irrelevant? If the answer is yes to, any, to either of these two questions, you should check your heart. Because you may be a member of the wrong family. Jesus Christ took the punishment due our sins. He freed us from the dominion of sin. And in that freedom, He calls us to love one another. There is no other response to Christ's love for us than to love our brothers and our sisters. Let us pray together. Father, we pray that you would bless the foolishness of the message proclaimed to the hearts of your people that we all would grow in love with you and with one another. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.